All right, sound is speeding. We are recording. Cool. All right, let's begin. Okay, so if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. crazy, 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 crazy. What? Great parade. Round to my band, sexual chocolate. Ladies. What? One game, one on one. <laughs> For what? Your heart. It was like his dip just talked to me. Baby, baby. Please. Please. Please, baby. Please, baby. Baby, baby. Please. Yo. You got the juice now, man. What is up, everybody, one and all? Welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passport to black film. My name is Desmond Thorne, and I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. As a reminder, if you're new to the show, if this is your first time listening, beyond doing this podcast... I am also a filmmaker. I'm a writer, director, producer, and actor. And we'll talk a lot about those things today in regards to the film that we are discussing. And I'm also a film programmer. I program films at NewFest, New York's LGBTQ film festival. I also direct Sketch Online, which has also become like a production studio, you know. And that's what I do. I do a lot of things. And that is why I am qualified to be here talking to you today about film. As a lover of film and a doer of film, uh, I have to say that I'm really starting to feel this pandemic exhaustion. I know what y'all are thinking you're like starting to feel. It's been a fucking year, but it's just all really coming to a head right now. It's busy with being busy with work stuff. It's also just the fact that it's been a fucking year, y'all. I cannot believe this. And it still doesn't really feel like there's any kind of end in sight. Yes, the vaccine is here. Yes, I have many friends who are being vaccinated now because as a restaurant worker, you can be vaccinated in New York City. But Jesus, I just, I really hope that something changes soon, that there are more vaccines. I don't know, but it it feels really exhausting and I'm tired today, but... I came here to do the show because I love doing the show, even though this pandemic and this COVID shit is slapping me around and punching me up. We are here today to talk about something that will never die, which is film. And today's adventure is in Windows and the White Gaze, and we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of the film Malcolm and Marie. But first... A little trust and believe. Now come on, I got to go. So Trust and Believe is a segment that I do on the show where I put you on to a film that's usually an independent film, a foreign film, something that's had a smaller audience, a smaller reach over the past few years or decades or so. And I want to put it on your radar because I think it's good and I think it's worth watching, even though you may not have heard about it. So... This week's Trust and Believe is a film called Residue. This film was directed by Marawi Garima and it was released in 2020. 
This film is very interestingly done, and it tells the story of a young man named Jay, who is a filmmaker. Jay returns to his neighborhood in D.C., only to find that it's almost completely changed. There's tons of gentrification, tons of white people, and his friends are all scattered, including his best friend, who he can't seem to find, and no one seems to want to tell him where he is. I think there are lots of things that are incredibly interesting about this film. I think the way that it depicts gentrification is very, very real. I think in that way, this film is a great alternative to a film like The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which has a lot of white gaze on it, and we'll get into that later today when talking about Malcolm and Marie. I think the way that you don't see white people's faces in this film is really good and very cool and very effective. It makes a statement without having to say anything. The way that these flashbacks to Jay's childhood are depicted are also incredibly interesting. It's like you're seeing the film that he wants to make or that he would make while you're watching this film. And I think when you're first watching it, that can come up as a little confusing. But the way that this film does not hold your hand through that process, I think is very trusting and very wise for someone who's making their first feature film debut, which Mary is doing with this film. I also think that there is a scene, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a scene where he goes to visit one of his friends in prison. And the way that this conversation transpires is so different than anything I've ever seen. It is so almost poetic and it's beautiful. And again, says so much without holding your hand. This film actually won two awards at the Slam Dance Film Festival. And the Slam Dance Film Festival was created as an alternative to Sundance. The Slam Dance Film Festival also takes place traditionally, pre-COVID, in Park City, Utah, where Sundance takes place. And it's interested in showing films that Sundance may have shown years and years ago. These are independent films that usually don't have any star power or anything, but they're still very, very, very good, and they still deserve a platform. So that's where the Slam Dance Film Festival comes from. And this film very much fits within their mission and what they're trying to do. Another film that's really good that played at Slam Dance that is also accessible, but not a black film that's on Amazon Prime, is a film called The Vast of Night. Residue also is nominated for two awards at the Independent Spirit Awards this year. It's been nominated for editing, which Merawi also did. The editing in this film is great, as he's often going back and forth between these two different realities of the present and of flashbacks and the way that things want to be represented in the main character, Jay's mind. And he's also nominated for the John Cassavetes Award, which is awarded to these independent filmmakers, people who are really doing it pretty much all on their own, which is similar to what John Cassavetes was doing in his early days. And speaking of John Cassavetes, honestly, Malcolm and Marie kind of reminds me of some of his stuff a little bit, like it's trying to be some of his stuff, but, you know, we'll get into that. So check out Residue. It's definitely worth it. 
I think it's really great for us to not only support these established filmmakers and these established films, but for us to also uplift these new filmmakers who are going to be the next generation. So check out the film. It is now streaming on Netflix. Do it. You are here for one reason. One reason only. To learn. To learn. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of Malcolm and Marie. Malcolm and Marie was directed by Sam Levinson, and it was released this year in 2021. A little summary of the film. This is about a young director named Malcolm, played by John David Washington, who comes home after the premiere of his first big film with his girlfriend, Marie, played by Zendaya, and the two of them have a night-long, often volatile, discourse about the film, their pasts, and most importantly, the state of their relationship. And there's no one else featured in the film. It is just John David Washington and Zendaya the whole time. So, some fun facts about this film. This was one of the first films written, directed, and produced during the COVID-19 pandemic under health guidelines given from the various film guilds, given from the Producers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, the Screen Actors Guild. So this is a very pioneering project in a lot of ways. And I even remember when they were talking about doing this and finding it to be interesting and kind of having issues with the whole thing from Jump, but we'll get into that. Fun fact number two, Sam Levinson and Zendaya had been brainstorming projects that they could do during the pandemic, as Sam Levinson is the showrunner and main director of the show Euphoria, which Zendaya stars on and also produces. And one of the ideas that Sam pitched to Zendaya was a psychological thriller that they would film at her home. And I would be so interested to see what that idea was and what that idea was like and to see what could have transpired from that had it been fleshed out and had that been the project that was chosen. Ultimately, he later decided on a relationship that plays out in real time, which is, for better or worse, the film that we are talking about today. Fun fact number three, no more than 12 people were allowed on set at a time during the shoot, meaning that both actors were responsible for their makeup and wardrobe. So what we're talking about here is probably, you know, the director, the two of them, the cinematographer, gaffers, you know, you need sound on board. So very bare bones. And there's something about the bare bones nature of this that I do appreciate. The fact that they were able to do this with a skeleton crew that's something you don't really see at this level that much with creators at this level, with actors at this level. You don't really see that. And as someone who is more or less working in that realm of those levels, I really appreciated seeing this uh, for that reason. So my first experience with this film was watching it for the podcast, obviously. It's a very new film. I was planning on doing a different film this week, but a guest did not come through. I don't know where this man is. 
He did not answer my emails. He did not answer my IG DMs. And we've done stuff together before, so I don't know where he is. But I, instead of doing that film by myself, I wanted to hold off on that because that film would be so much fun to do with a guest. And someone on Twitter suggested that I do Malcolm and Marie because they wanted me to make sense of this film. And I had heard so much discourse about this film on Twitter from film critics, from so many people that I did want to check it out. And, you know, I am glad that I'm doing this film on the podcast because I mostly do talk about films that I like. I feel like I can get a lot of juice in discussion of talking about films that I do like. But I think it's also important to look at films that I don't like as much and to talk about them with a critical gaze. We kind of got into that in the episode about Soul, and we will definitely be getting into that with this film as... You know, the white gaze on black films is something that I talk about often, especially when we have guests on the show and we play Who's Invited. And I hope that those tools have kind of helped you navigate a film like this. You know, seeing this black film written and directed by a white person, it's a bit of a doozy. So let's get into these themes of windows and the white gaze. So, obviously, you know why the white gaze is one of our themes for the day. But in terms of windows, I mean, you get to the set of this house. This house is essentially one of those really nice, I believe, California beach homes. Lots of windows. So there's lots of shots through these big windows which sometimes really works, sometimes it does not. And in that vein, let's talk about, to start off on a positive note, some of the things that I did like about this film. Woo! So, first of all, Zendaya. Zendaya is really great. Uh, she is just a wonderful actor. She can, at this point, I think, almost make anything work because she made this script work for her. She really brings herself into the character of Marie. I believe every single word that she's saying, every single emotion that she goes through, there's even a part where she plays a trick on Malcolm, and it's done so well and so grounded and so realistically that I also bought this joke that she was playing on Malcolm. Zendaya is someone who... I really wasn't tracking for a long time. You know, as a child actor, I really didn't watch any of the stuff that she was on. I had seen her in a Spider-Man movie, and she was good in that. But then when I started watching Euphoria, I was like, oh, sis is a beast. She is beyond what I thought she could do. And she continues to impress me in this role because the script, honestly, is not very good at all. It's very much thrown together during the pandemic, and that is just very evident in the words that these people have to speak. But again, she really makes it work. There is much needed comedy in this film, this film being a two-hander that tackles some pretty serious subjects. 
You can't have a movie of just seriousness and have no comedy. People need to breathe. People need to have a kind of release of the tension that is happening in the film. There are very few films that can kind of get away with having no humor. This is not one of them. But... What Zendaya does, being a very good actor, and also probably instinctually knowing that at this point, she brings some much needed humor to the film. There are parts that she does that make me chuckle, make me smile, and partially it's just because it's Zendaya and I love her now. I'm a Zendaya stan, as we established in the Soul episode. Yeah, I mean, she's so good to the point where... I wouldn't mind seeing her getting nominated for things. I don't think she'll get nominated for an Oscar, per se, but she got nominated for a Critics' Choice Award, didn't get the SAG, so I guess that's probably it for this film. But the fact that she's honestly good enough to get nominated for a film that, spoiler alert, I don't think is very good, that really just says something about your talent, and it makes me really want to work with her and see what other kind of roles that people will write for her, what kind of projects that she will continue to produce. She is a producer on Euphoria, and she is a producer on this film, along with John David Washington. And strangely enough, Kid Cudi is one of the producers on this film. I don't understand that per se, but, oh, well, there is some stuff about addiction in this film, and Kid Cudi has been someone who has dealt with that often. And speaking of addicts and addictions... I would love to see these roles that are coming for Zendaya in the future where she doesn't necessarily have to play an addict. This is obviously no shade to addicts or characters who are addicts, but in seeing an actor grow and spread their wings, I do want to see a character that she's great in that is not an addict, just for some, you know, variation in her portfolio. You know, I did just start uh, trading stocks a little bit with a little bit of money, so I'm very much about the portfolio language now. So another thing I liked about this film is the cinematography. The cinematography is done by Marcel Rev who is the cinematographer on Euphoria. Not all the episodes, but he established the look of the show and I believe DP'd the first four episodes of that show as well as the two special episodes that they released during COVID. I mean, it's really beautifully shot. It's shot on 16 millimeter film, which I couldn't necessarily tell from watching it on my small TV, but... This film was released in limited theaters, and to see this on a big screen, I think you'd be able to take in more of those textures that you do get from film and from the rich black and white coloring that they've done on the film. I'm not sure if they shot in black and white or if they colored, if they did color grading and color correcting afterward. But that being said, the black and white is really beautiful. There have been a slew of black and white films recently that have come out that come to mind, the 40-year-old version comes to mind, Mank, which I haven't seen, comes to mind, Passing, the film that we talked about last week that premiered at Sundance is also in black and white. So this is kind of coming back into fashion a little bit, and I feel like there are reasons why he did this. I think Sam Levinson really did want this to feel like an older film. He did want it to feel like a 
John Cassavetti's joint, which, you know, I guess is aspirational, but doesn't necessarily hit the mark. But the cinematography in terms of the movement is really cool. The lighting is really great, I have to say. Though some of those tracking shots in the windows in the beginning, I'm like, ah, come on, I'm getting sick. They just follow John David Washington, who plays Malcolm, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for like five minutes. And it's like, okay, we get it. We know what you're doing. We understand. We like it. Please, can we move on to another shot? I also, in this film, like the discourse about critics. The discourse specifically about white critics who talk about black films and the way that they talk about black films. There's almost a a fetishization of our communities, of our work, of our lives in some of these reviews that rub me the wrong way There's definitely a misunderstanding of a lot of our films often. It can be a film that has not been critically loved and not critically loved for a lack of understanding. There can be films that are critically lauded for a lack of understanding about how we actually are. A film that again comes to mind that I talk shit about on this podcast constantly, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. This film was lauded by critics white critics, and when I read a piece from a black critic, I was like, see, now this is how I feel. This is what's really happening here, and this is what makes me uncomfortable about the film. So when there is a part of the film when Malcolm is reading his review by a white woman, the discourse that goes on around that is very good, And it feels accurate, you know? And at the same time, I think it's portrayed through a monologue that is just, I mean, this writing, especially for Malcolm, is just, uh, it's just not good. It's not good. And I think that's something that everybody can really agree on. I think even fairly good reviews of this movie were just like, okay, The script, though. The script. And that's what brings me to the things that I disliked. So, one of the first things that I wrote about this film when I was taking notes is that John David Washington is not his father. And I was talking to Amanda about this. She said the same thing. And her point was, and I agree with this, that that is okay. It is okay that John David Washington is not Denzel Washington. It's pretty hard to be Denzel Washington. Denzel is Denzel. And there are many cases in which children of famous actors who are well-regarded are also very good. Examples that come to mind are actually Meryl Streep's daughters. I think Meryl Streep's daughters bring a bit more naturalism to a lot of their roles than even their mother does these days. Specifically, her daughter Grace, who is excellent in the show Mr. Robot. But John David Washington, to me, I don't know, y'all. I just don't think he has the range. She doesn't have the range. Sheena Easton. She doesn't have the range. Paul McCartney. She doesn't have the range. Shirley Bassey. She doesn't have the range. I'm sorry, Shirley, I love her to bits, but she doesn't have the range. 
but that's you. I don't care, I don't have the range. I'm so sorry, I am so sorry. If you like him, if you know him personally, I just don't think he's been in a situation where he has been able to really be nurtured and take the time and for someone to really work with him through these beats of these movies and to really be in it. There are times where he does sound like Denzel, though, which is, like, eerie. But, I mean, to his credit, the character of Malcolm I don't really like. I think this character is very toxic. He's very poorly written. And it really seems like Sam Levinson as a white man is trying to get his point of view through a black man and it just does not feel right to me. There's something about this character being written by a white man where it's like, I don't know what you're trying to say about black men, but it very much rubs me the wrong way. It makes me feel icky, sticky, icky, icky. Um, It just, it reads just like that. It honestly reads just like that, that this is a white man and his point of view on a black man. But it's more than that. It's trying to meld his own point of view as a white man with this black man's point of view. There are so many instances where Malcolm just goes off on rants about different white filmmakers many, many times. And I was like, um, an angel loses its wings every time this motherfucker mentions these old white filmmakers, these William Wylers and all these people who are just like filmmakers that white film students idolize and that just annoyed the shit out of me and of course he mentions some black filmmakers as well he mentions spike and he mentions barry jenkins quite a lot but it's like that's still from the white gaze there are so many others it seems like he opened a book about black filmmakers saw the first two and was like okay There we go, that's who we can mention. The rest of the people can just be people that I like, these white dudes. And really, John David Washington just yells most of the time in this movie. Like, if I was Marie, if I was Zendaya, I would have killed him in the first five minutes. It would have been, yeah, that's how you make it into a psychological thriller, a murder movie, just fucking kill this dude. I would have done it. Malcolm is a very insufferable character. And I know that's partially the point, but John David Washington does not have the tools, does not have the range to make us even like him a little bit, to give him a little bit of a human flavor. It seems like John David Washington playing a character. You know, even in Black Klansman, when he was nominated for an Oscar, I didn't think he deserved that. Spike Lee, I have heard, I don't know if this is factual, I have heard that he's a director that mostly kind of lets actors find it themselves, which is fine because he usually works with very, very good actors. He's working with Denzel. He's working with Samuel L. Jackson. He's working with Halle Berry. He's working with Alfre Woodard. But for someone who is newer at acting, they may need more of a guidance. And I just have yet to be impressed with John David Washington. And I really want to be. I really, really want to be as someone who seems really cool and as someone who I am personally a fan of Denzel Washington's work. You know, I think there's still kind of a 
a bit of a, a learning and a growth and a finding of his own voice that I think has to happen. We kind of saw this with Solange, right? When Solange first started making music as Beyonce's younger sister, a lot of people were just like, huh? She kind of sounds like Beyonce, that she's trying to kind of be Beyonce, but she's not Beyonce. And then Solange found her voice and she is such an individual artist that everyone loves now. And the two can coincide. You can be Beyonce's sister and you can do your own thing. And I think you can be Denzel Washington's kid and be your own thing. Now, what happens here, these roles that are written for black men in Hollywood in general, you know, he is going to come up against getting similar roles as his dad because that's kind of what Hollywood is writing for. You know, they're looking for Denzel Washington types to play these Denzel Washington type roles. And also Denzel just did so much. It's going to be really, really tough to get out of his shadow and to stop people comparing the two. But it's the work you got to do, brother, you know get together with some folks because I know some folks want to write for you and dip your toe into some shit that's just way, way different. Because I think the difference being that we are in 2021, we are seeing people that are kind of like, you know, Lakeith Stanfield and Donald Glover who are kind of doing weirder stuff. And I wonder if John David Washington would work in just doing something that's completely 180, that's just so balls to the wall, weird and strange. You know, maybe that's the key. Thinking again about Solange, that's kind of the direction that she went in because it feels more like what she wanted to do. So, you know, I'm not giving up on John David Washington, but he's not great in this movie. These monologues, these huffing and puffing that he does after his monologues. It seems so exaggerated. There's a part where he's outside punching and kicking the the air that is just, uh, it's... Okay, but why, though? He's, yeah, just not a proper sparring partner for Zendaya in this way. And it's a two-hander. It's just two people. And for a film to just have two people, you gotta be in the moment, every moment of this film. Another thing I didn't like about this movie, which I talked about a little bit just now, is the white gaze. Oh my God, there's so much white gaze on this movie. Because at the end of the day, this dude is still more interested in the trauma that these people have been through and the trauma they're experiencing in the present than he is in really representing full black lives. (sighs) This mac and cheese scene. So... In the beginning of the film, Zendaya, who plays Marie, is making some mac and cheese for Malcolm, and it's Kraft mac and cheese. It looks disgusting because Kraft mac and cheese is disgusting. Black folks, I don't know many black folks personally who are out here eating Kraft mac and cheese unless they're on a budget and they're in college, and it's no choice. They are a child, And uh, I think that's pretty much it. I don't think anyone is like fiending for the taste of Kraft mac and cheese, but this dude just like scarfs it down. It looks disgusting. It sounds disgusting. And he eats two full bowls of this shit. It is abhorrent. It is one of the most abhorrent things I've seen in cinema this year. Ah, disgusting. Get it out of here. In my house, in my family, 
No mac and cheese gets consumed unless it goes in the oven, unless it's baked mac and cheese from scritchity, scratchity. Disgusting. That is some white shit. That is some white people fucking shit. He couldn't have had them make anything else. What was the significance of the Kraft mac and cheese, Sam Levinson? Let me know. I would love to know. Because if you're trying to do something, right, where... It's like, I need her to be making a quick meal that he can then eat in this scene. To start it off, there are so many other things that you could have made besides something that I find to be an insult to black people. Also, I hate, 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 hate when white people write the word nigga in any context in their film. I hate it. It feels like they're still saying it, and it feels lazy, and it never comes off correctly. Again, I'm gonna mention the last black man in San Francisco. They say nigga to an unnatural amount, and they say it in ways that we don't really say it or mean it, and that happens again in this movie. I think it's said twice by Malcolm, and it just comes off as a white person writing nigga in their script and a person who doesn't know how to say it right in this context because it's not in the right context because it's written by a white man. Yeah, there is just so much to unpack when we are talking about white people telling black stories. Again, this is way more interested in their trauma than I think it is interested in exploring them as full black people. And it makes me wonder, you know, obviously whatever he wrote and created, you know, was going to have Zendaya in it. And there had to be limited people involved. Honestly, she could have done a fucking movie by herself and it would have been great. But I really wonder why he felt he had to write this film about this black couple. Like, what did he feel he had to bring to the table as a white person on the point of view of this? And also something that doesn't work in this movie and doesn't work about a lot of films about filmmaking itself, people really aren't interested in that. You know, when you're watching a film about the making of a film or about the discourse of a film, it's usually not that interesting. If you make films, sure, I guess it may be interesting. I mean, the Academy loves movies about movies, but to most people outside of that, I just... I don't really see much of the interest. There are things about the minutia of the film business that are kind of glamorized and de-glamorized to such extremes that I don't feel like they're being particularly honest or authentic about how it actually is. Because at the end of the day, you still have to sell a movie ticket. And I think if people were being actually really honest about it, it would be kind of hard to sell movie tickets because it's really not glamorous. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of grueling work to create something that at the end of the day you hope is beautiful. So I think that there are just so many strikes against this film from Jump from when it was being written. And the script is just so, so sloppy. First of all, you have a two-hander in which Oftentimes, people are talking about an event that is not present. They're talking about the past and they're talking about the future. And that is so uninteresting. If you're going to have a two-hander, that shit has to be as present as 
possible, as present as possible, to watch all of these scenes in which people are talking about people that we don't know, things that we haven't been to, we haven't been to the premiere, we don't know these people. You have to have a really great script and also really great actors that fill in that past for us for that to really work. Zendaya did it, JDW, not as much. And the script, not as much. You're not given enough context about these people to really give a fuck about them. And also, Amanda, when we were talking about the film, Bob the Great Point, about their age, I don't have an issue with the difference of age between them. I never really did. I don't really think it's that weird. I think Zendaya made a great point in the press about people not wanting to see her grow up and be grown, which, absolutely. But I think it's that, you know, if you're going to do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, that works because there's a past. These motherfuckers have been together for like 20 years. So... There's a gravitas to that relationship that is understood. And also in a piece like that, you have the younger couple to counterbalance. Same thing with the film Shirley that came out last year. If you're going to do something about these couples and have all this discourse and have something that's very dialectic and very dialogue heavy, then there's got to be more meat to it. And I think that that is another thing that contributed to the lack of the meat in this film. And you can just tell that this was written during COVID. It's very, very sloppily done, very quickly written to the point where you're watching this and you're like, this seems like a very well-produced student film that could have been on Vimeo and doesn't really seem to be the kind of film that they want it to be. And yeah, that's exactly how it comes off. It comes off as this white film student from NYU or some other big prestigious film school trying to make a film with two people who he happened to get because they were friends of a friend or something like that. It just reads, it reeks of that. And in terms of creating during COVID, like, I get it. I was working on a pilot that we did a proof of concept for last summer and that we were meant to shoot this previous summer in full in summer 2020. I get the itch to create and continue to do your thing during COVID, but I think this is actually a time more than anything to really work and nurture the craft of working on scripts and nurturing the craft of pre-production. Getting all of those things, all of those ducks in a row, before you approach the actual production, the actual making of the film, instead of trying to rush and do it all at once. I mean, I have really wanted to get back on set, and I have in some ways. I have still been able to create during COVID with, you know, directing the sketch team virtually, working with Blackstar. There still has been a lot of creation, a lot of creative juices flowing. There hasn't been as much of my own stuff because I'm honestly very wary about being on a set at this time, period. 
I don't have any pieces where it doesn't require a lot of people. And to be perfectly honest, I don't want to adapt it to not require a lot of people. It's part of the point of the piece. I want to stick to my guns and be patient and just kind of wait this out until I can actually make this the way I want it to be. I don't want any of my products to come off as sloppy and as something that was just put together and then not make it anywhere because I don't have the same name as Sam Levinson. I don't have Zendaya and John David Washington in my project. I don't have Netflix. Netflix backing it so it wouldn't make it anywhere and I think it's kind of disrespectful to the stakes that we all have as filmmakers who don't have that money who don't have the access who don't have the stars to be in this movie it kind of makes it seem like well this shit that they're creating in COVID is like booty it is not good so that kind of pissed me off as well you know In conclusion with this film, I understand, like I was just saying, wanting to continue to work during the pandemic. We are all itching to get back to normalcy. And in a way, the beginning of the pandemic really did feel like a great time to get creative juices going and flowing and to try some things out to be more experimental and low budget and tighter than things can usually be in other circumstances. But this all felt very extremely rushed to me. On one hand, it would have been great if they had decided to work on something that had already been through many drafts, that was more or less ready to go and had more time to breathe. I think when you're working on a screenplay, letting it breathe is one of the most important things. You can't just have a sourdough starter one day, put it in the oven and call it a day. Nah, there's a process. You gotta let that shit breathe. And then, on the other hand, the way this was done could have led to more interesting marketing and truly branding it and leaning into the fact that this was a thrown together COVID experiment rather than a full-fledged prestigious awards bait film. Thinking about how this film could have worked in a way as like a surprise drop. It's like, we did this during COVID as a treat for y'all. Just watch it. It's free. Just, you know, it was an experiment. That could have worked in a really interesting way, but I guess... Motherfuckers want their money. Zendaya is wonderful. She always is. And for something like this to work, the script and her fellow actor had to really rise to her level. And it didn't really hit the mark for me. This film is now streaming on Netflix. And I'm very interested to hear what your thoughts are about this movie. Check it out. So the time has come for the You Better Act Award. This is an award that I give out every week to a performance that I think is just absolutely amazing and brilliant and deserves to be talked about. So I do because it's my show. I can do what I want. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please... Coleman Domingo in Euphoria, Trouble Don't Last Always. This is one of those special episodes I was referring to. I think I talked about this when I talked about Coleman Domingo on some gay shit. He's been mentioned quite often on this podcast recently, so... I don't know if he'll take notice and give me his number, but we'll see. But this was also directed by Sam Levinson, and this was released last year. So we've obviously, like I just said, have been talking a lot about Coleman on the podcast these days. And I wanted to talk about this performance in contrast to Malcolm and Marie. 
Somehow, this was written by the same person, presumably in the same amount of time, with two black people at the center, and somehow comes off so much better. I think that's largely in part because Coleman is a proper sparring partner with Zendaya. He brings so much gravitas in the character's past to what he's doing in the present that doesn't have to explain as much through his performance. Also, being an established TV character, to be fair, there was more to work with than they had to work with in Malcolm and Marie. But I think in general, Coleman is so good at handling the ebbs and the flows of the character and the script, I think more so than John David Washington, let's say. Though this is mostly two people talking in a diner, they keep it so interesting and fresh by truly being in the moment and truly playing off of each other and feeding each other. It is also such a refreshing break from the fast pace of the show, which I also enjoy. So check this out. I'm so interested to see what y'all think of Coleman's performance, especially in contrast to a John David Washington, let's say. Euphoria, Trouble Don't Last Always is now streaming on HBO and HBO Max. So in closing, some food for thought this week. Who are two actors that you would watch in a two-hander film like Malcolm and Marie that you think would kill it together? I'm very interested to hear responses on this. Comment on SFB Society, comment on our Instagram, follow us on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, follow us on Spotify. Thank you so much per usual to the team. We have Mott Mozzarella on our audio. We have Cindy Edwards, who is our production assistant. And we have Miss Amanda Seals, our executive producer. Next week, we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of the film Ma, starring Octavia Spencer, an icon. And I will be getting into the nitty-gritty of this film with my good friend, Shay Fillmore, who we've had on the podcast before. Very excited to have her return. So till then, stay safe, stay black, stay blessed. I love you all. Thank you for listening week to week. And I'll see y'all next week. Oh, it's over. Great.